Welcome back, my friends, to the sweet spot where your ideas with all the ideas and the dog also want to be part of the podcast. My friends, my name is Carlos Vargas, and as every week, I am here with my two co-hosts, Paul Lewis and Howard Holton. Hey, guys. Hello, hello. Hey, Carlos. Hello. And today we have a special guest with us, Nasheen Liu. How are you doing, Nasheen? I'm doing great. Hi, Carlos. How are you? Very good. So we know what Paul and Howard do every week, and we're going to get them a little bit later. But tell us a little bit about you and your company and what you guys do uh, every day. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Carlos, for the introduction. And thanks, guys, for, for having me today. My name is Nishin Liu, and I'm one of the founding partners with the IT Media Group. So I oversee the planning and implementation of our strategic initiatives that impact the Canadian IT executive community. I also chair a cross-industry CIO advisory board. Paul sits on it as well. And the board provides guidance on issues and topic that impact our Canadian CIO and IT vendor communities. So the IT media group is a CIO focused content and engagement platform. And our mission is to drive the ongoing conversations and collaboration in the Canadian CIO community. So very similar to what we're doing here. So we're uh, really loving that you're with us here. And we are gonna have a great conversation today. So guys, what is the topic for today? So this is our ongoing industry series, as we know. Um, so we talked about, you know, leading IT in a pandemic, and we talked about sort of going forward, what that looks like. Uh, and now we want to say, what are the dimensions in the industry? Uh, we talked about financial services and healthcare. And then today's the double click on on two parts, because Nasheen has some expertise in, in lots of areas. But let's let's double click on the marketing side, both how is marketing, let's say, to CIOs different or just the marketing practice holistically and the PR side? Because I think that's also interesting. Um, and then we'll dabble a little bit of, you know, how we virtually communicate with CIOs and things like that. That's 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 well and new. And we think there's a decent long tail. I think it'd be interesting, too, to talk about how how we see um, communication changing. Mm. Right. And how much of that do we see as a temporary change? And how much of that do we see as a permanent change? And what are the pluses and minuses? Let's start there. Let's, let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, that's more interesting. Okay. So um, I, I would argue that um, the biggest challenge in COVID is that we've changed from active to passive communication entirely too much. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was headed home. I had an errand to run. I was headed home. Um, driving my route and there's a merge and I didn't have the yield nor the merge and the other guy decided that that he could ignore the signs that didn't have the yield or the merge either so I had to hit my brakes and I brakes and I honked my horn and and you know initially like we've all been there right so you get a little bit angry about it like come on dude pay attention what are you doing Urgh. Um, but he immediately, you know, we, we ended up finding, we ended up, we're going exactly the same place. And so he got aside me and he's like, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Like there's construction and I, I just wasn't paying attention. It's totally my fault. Totally my bad. Um, and instantly any frustration I had vanished, hmm. right? Like I don't really have a road rage issue, so I'm not going to hold on to stuff, but 
but had had he not said anything, I probably would have been a little gr- grumpy for a half a mile or so. And it, it really highlighted to me the difference between active communication and passive communication, right? Passive communication is something occurs, I react to it and communicate, right? An email or text comes in, I read it, and then I immediately re- reply, and then I wait for a reply. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen happen here is we've been pushed into more active communication, right? Instead of seeing someone in the hall, you see them on email. Instead of, you know, walking up and kind of water coolering, you're forced to schedule meetings. And it, it pushes kind of all of the relationships more into a passive relationship from an active relationship. And moving forward, there's a lot of talk about maintaining Zoom, maintaining video communication, and easing off the in-person. And I'm not sure that it's all good. What are your thoughts? I, I um, agree with your observation. And, you know, one thing I would add is what this crisis has done um, is that in some ways, or in a lot of ways, it actually has dismantled this stiff button down corporate facade. Mm. And it allows us to be more human. And we've discovered us as real people and with real lives. And, you know, and this discovery is quite liberating for us as individuals, as well as as businesses, when we communicate to others. So especially when we communicate to our partners, our staff, as well as our customers. So it it really cuts down to what's really important, right? So we allow ourselves to all of a sudden to be more direct, more honest, more open, and with the level of transparency that's never, we've never experienced before. So, and, and there's also that human layer, that humanity layer, Right. So we need we are now more empathetic, um, show more compassion in our day to day communication, whether it be with our our teams or customers or um, just a corporate communication to businesses. It, it's highlighted leadership, too. Right. Uh, it was it was very different to lead by walking around or manage by walking around cube to cube, looking over your shoulder, you know, whispering, uh, you know directing on a, on a day-to-day basis. Now, now you can't do that, right? It requires um, a pointed conversation, you know, using technology, connecting together, opening up a link, um, formal. In fact, it's, it even feels a little bit more formal. I can't whisper in a world like this, even though I'm not wearing a suit, I'm not wearing a tie. Um, but the one thing I hear most often, at least from the better leaders, is that... Um, we need to make sure that since you're inviting us into your room, into your home, that you get to make those rules uh, versus the opposite side where you had to go and wear a suit and tie nine to five. And, you know, you, you ran by our rules. Now new leaders or better leaders are saying it's your rules. You get to do whatever you want. If you want to wear kiss makeup or kiss makeup, right? It, it is what it is. I know what I'm doing on the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I- that actually brings up an interesting concept. It, it feels like um, COVID, right, the pandemic, had us um, create our own junk drawer, mm. right? And we took all of the stuff that we deemed to be unnecessary because it all happened kind of overnight, right? And we just kind of shoved it into a junk drawer. Oh, the, the three-piece suit that I normally wear, uh, shove it in a junk drawer. 
right. checking in an airlines, Uber, all that stuff, stuff in the junk drawer, right? Um, this formal communication stuff in the junk drawer. My, my only concern is, is as we do that, right? It's now been three months that we stop and start looking through that junk drawer. It doesn't become the thing we hide in the back of the closet, but rather we kind of piece through it and go, is this formality something we need to keep? No, probably not. I think it's better without it. And now it just goes in the trash, right? So it's no longer this thing that we're hiding in the junk drawer, but we also pick things up and go, oh crap, we also kind of tossed this in the junk drawer. And I kind of liked that. And if I don't want to go all the way back to that, how do I ensure that I still get the value from that thing? And I think that's where the active passive communication really kind of starts to come in. Nasheen, has corporate communication changed? Like is press release written differently? Am I, because I'm not present at, let's say events or I'm not, you know, I don't have a showcasing booth at a big conference. Like is communication changing? Is the style changing? Is the content changing? Well, it's a good question because on one hand, I did notice brands tend to be more or less tone deaf these days, right? So they make an effort in understanding what's going on in the world. What are the world-changing events or specific socioeconomic circumstances that should be factored in to the fabric of their communication? Mm -hmm. So that is a positive change. On the other hand, what I'm finding is there are still companies out there that are trying to exploit the situation in the name of I'm a pandemic expert. I'm trying to help you. And I can I can't tell you how many pandemic experts I've met in my inbox in the last few weeks. So and, and that goes back to the you know, the point that I, I made earlier about being open and honest and transparent. Don't pretend to be something you're not, right? Don't mm. pretend that you're the only one that has everything figured out because you're not, because you have not been to a pandemic and neither has any of us, right? So we're all learning. And as we're learning, I think brands roles are to be useful and to be helpful. And you can, you know, point your customers to content that will be of use to them, of value to them, or point them to resources that could better help them understand and avoid making more mistakes. But don't pretend you are an expert because that just puts people off right away. And in terms of, sorry, in terms of releases coming from corporations, mm -hmm. I've seen that shift in tone, um, which is a positive change, but I haven't really seen a bigger shift in understanding what exactly is newsworthy to the marketplace, right? So do people really care at this point when everything is going back to your junk drawer um, analogy that they just wanted to buy another new feature and a new upgrade, right? You really have to think twice about how you communicate that. And because otherwise it's a waste of time because no one's going to be interested in picking it up anyway. So is a, is a better message, I feel your pain versus I know your pain and know how to fix it? Yeah, I, I feel your pain. I'm here to listen. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here to understand how I can help you and add value to you. But, I, uh, you know, this is not just me. And in conversation with several CIOs in the 
past few weeks. And that seemed to be a common complaint across the board is all of a sudden every vendor is, you know, calling them, emailing them, pretending to be an expert, a pandemic expert, and a DNR expert, right? Like even the disaster and recovery strategies is not the same because you assume you're creating a task team under the circumstances these people are all physically working together, right? So now we're in a social distancing environment. So that strategy is changing and evolving to meet the evolving needs. So don't pretend, just listen and try to be helpful. I think the number one rule, like the number one thing that got you deleted when I was a CIO and still continues to this day is FUD. If you lead with fear, uncertainty, and doubt and try to play on that or prey on that, you get instant deleted. And unfortunately, that hasn't gone away. The difference is now all of the companies that were preying on FUD are now pandemic, pandemic experts to extend that prey on FUD. And I would say, I would encourage everyone that, that hears this to really look at the messaging your company puts out and say, are we, are we using FUD to try to push a message or, or not? And if we are, let's start over. Let's really take a look at that and really think about how what is the message we want to show and how do we want to be observed? Yeah. And, and the other thing I would add is the rules of the game are changing as well. And the, the reason I, you know, what I mean by that is now no longer are your customers just looking at the relationship piece, the trust factor, your products and services, the quality, all of that are still important. But now they're also looking at how are you doing with your health and safety measures, right? Are you edging out your competitions because you're ahead of the game and really looking at that, not just, you know, with the products and services you're offering, not just, you know, saying the right things, but factoring that in into your product design, into, you know, the, the services you're, you're offering and making it really easy and safer for them on the receiving end. And I think that's a big thing. Um, another thing I can think of is more and more brands are looking at their brand equity and say, what do we really stand for, right? Beyond just what do we do, but it's more about why are we doing it and how do you really align that brand equity, um, that purpose-led brand with your customers, that also plays a role because your customers are now investing more in diversity and inclusion, right? Are, are standing up to racism. Like all those things are now adding to the rules of the game you're playing. So is your PR recommendation to be far more out front on things like civil unrest and diversity Versus you might have been more quiet about that, thinking that there'd be, you know, political and or customer implications. Well, let me put, put, put it this way. I actually read it somewhere just the other day and I thought it was very telling. By saying you're not a racist does not mean you're an anti-racist, mm. right? That's an example because one ha takes a stance, the other one is not. 
But it also goes back to my point that don't pretend to be someone you're not. If you're barely saying the right things because everybody else is saying it, that's not going to give you the longevity. And that's why brands need to take a long and good look at their you know, brand definition, brand identity, what they truly stand for, and then factor that in into all your practices, like your hiring practices, right? So if you're saying we value diversity and inclusion, you look around on your team, 95% of the people look just like you with a similar background as you, mm-hmm. how do you back that up? And it's not just something that's good for your reputation. It's good for your business. And I'll give you an example. Um, I don't mean to go down on this one theme, but GE Health, for example, a couple years ago had a all-female team of engineers and designers and managers working on designing a brand new kind of mammography machine. And if you have spouses or family members who've ever done a mammography, then you would have heard from them that's not the most comfortable experience. And, you know, and in fact, it's a very excruciating experience because that was not designed by a woman. So you don't know what considerations that need to be put into um, the design. Right. And another example is if you were to Google CEO, you're going to have all these pictures with male, white male show up because at the very coding and design stage, that's an unconscious bias. Right. So when you have developers that are mostly men putting these coding languages or, or design logics in and that's what happens. So and I think companies, when they look at what do we stand for and really look at those issues, it goes beyond just how do we message it? How do we communicate? It's really revamping how you practice those things. I I think the biggest thing though needs to be avoidance of bandwagon. Right. Right. If you don't understand it and you can't get behind it and you can't justify it and talk about it, don't just jump on the bandwagon because it comes across as insincere. Right. And, and I see that a ton. Um, I'll get an email from one airline and then I'll immediately get an email from four other airlines where they've almost done a kind of a cut and paste. And it's like, I, I didn't really believe the first airline, but I definitely don't believe the other four. <laughs> right. Right. And, and that seems to be kind of photocopied and going around. Um, take a moment and talk about what those things we aim to be more diverse. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? How do you aim to be more diverse? Um, one of the things I asked for when, when interviewing, right, I talked to the recruiters at length. I want to see more diversity in the resumes I get, right? Not because I'm trying to, to you know, wave a flag, but because I want differing opinions. I don't want to just sit in a room that's an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. And we should all aim to not sit in a room that's an echo chamber. That should be front and foremost. How do I ensure I'm meeting the market? Well, the market's made up of everyone, not just me. Therefore, shouldn't we start with a design that represents everyone? And um, the mammar, mammary machines are scientific torture devices. Mammogram. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife and I have talked about the mammogram machines at kind of length, and they're scientific torture machines. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, All that to say, uh, I rarely believe my own opinion. So I agree. We, we require diversity. Yeah. Uh, on the other side of that equation, um, in terms of sort of marketing your wares, what has been the most impressive so far is, is the actions that we've seen, like the real fast agility changes, like a, a Main Street restaurant that now has a pickup window and has a website and can deliver on Uber Eats or, or Disney now has a resort park reservation system and they did that in three weeks period of time. Like these were multi-year projects and now they're getting them done really, really quick. That's far more impressive than, you know, an event or a press release or, you know, a new feature function on their product. That's, that's not as interesting. Show me, show me some real life agile changes you've made that affect me personally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just yesterday we opened up our first server free COVID safe restaurant in Toronto. Like by saying we, I don't mean the you IT personally. media group. <laughs> <laughs> but we in Canada, in Toronto. So this guy who owns Paramount's Fine Foods opened mm -hmm. up our very first restaurant and it's all enabled by digital kiosk. So you uh, use your mobile, uh, mo mobile devices to, to reserve and select your menu. You show up and you know, there's a full kitchen of real people making your food still, and mm -hmm. then you just pick it up from one of the digital kiosks and then you leave, right? And you also have an option to sit down and they have 20 tables, very um, nice, nicely designed and safe to have in-house, in-restaurant dining. So it's that kind of thing, how innovation happens in such a mm -hmm. fast period of time. And I'm, always in the belief that innovation is not driven by desire. It's driven by necessity. When it's absolutely necessary, your only option to be creative, to do something differently and to change fast and furious, innovation happens. What's interesting about that example though, is we had that in 1950, right? You would literally walk up to a vending machine you would make your selection from the vending machine. It was real food that real people were putting out. You took your thing, you sat down or took it to go, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's um, I think a really good kind of reuse of an old concept um, that fell out of favor for some bizarre reason. Oh, it is new again. Let's, let's talk about IT Media Group specifically. Um, and I would love to hear the story, the transition between your mastery of the physical CIO roundtable. It's clearly, you know, a premier event. You get lots of people going, the content is rich, the output's rich, but then you transition to a virtual version of that. Like, what's the story? What, you know, pros, cons, misses, wins, what's, what happened? Well, it's interesting. Thank you for asking. And, and this is an example of how demands drive change. Right. So when lockdown happened in mid-March, at the time, to be quite honest, we weren't thinking about pivoting to a virtual platform right away. And my initial thoughts was, let's wait and see, right? And then sort of change and refine our strategy. But overnight, we received half a dozen requests from 
IT vendors from our sponsors, just simply asking, you know, are, are you doing virtual roundtables? And, you know, if so, when does that happen? And what I realized is when you're looking at the typical IT organization and their marketing organization, especially in field marketing, 50 to 90% of the field marketing budget is on in-person events. So all of a sudden, when that plug got turned off, and yet at the time, your measurements, your KPIs have not been adjusted, you still have to deliver X amount of leads, uh, demands, and you know pipeline and whatnot, then you're looking for alternate ways to do things. And I remember, Paul, I think you were on the same call with me with uh, one of the marketing people and she was sharing her screen and all of a sudden her outlook calendar pops up and then she has a meeting that says spend money yeah I remember that which is really interesting <laughs> right so you have to pivot your budget um still trying to deliver results and looking for alternate ways to do things so that really was the push for us to pivot to a virtual platform is it easy? I would say, relatively speaking, from a technology perspective, yes. Thank goodness for Zoom and for all these collaboration tools out there. Mm -hmm. But one mistake that many companies are making with their virtual events is they think they can just take an in-person event, you know, put it on Zoom and, you know, just make it happen. But what we did slightly different was we look at our in-person events and from an engagement perspective, and how can we put that on a virtual platform with still 10, 12, 14 people, and yet allow everybody to share their insights. Because in the in-person event is different. You can have very active contributors, and then you can have people who you know, say a few words, but then a couple of people who will choose to be silent because they're just there and, you know, learn and listen to their peers and they can still network before and after with your peers. But with the virtual platform, you can't do that. You have to allow everybody to share almost on the equal footing. So one of the changes we've implemented was we decided to do a one on one briefing with every participant ahead of time so that they fully understand the flow and content and what's expected out of them. And they have a choice to pre-select questions and topics that will be of interest to them so they can contribute. That is one of the key changes. Um, and another key change was we made sure that for our virtual event, we still capture all the content and making sure the, the report piece is still happening. So we did not um, abandon the report, which was a highly valuable asset to our, um, to our CIOs as well as to our sponsor. Does it feel more scripted with all the pre-work that you're doing? Like questions are pre-selected, does it feel less, uh, less open or less organic? Yeah, I think that is one thing that we're actually now implementing to our next roundtable is to allow that Q&A to still happen. 
right? Because you have to sort of balance between having everyone equally contribute and say enough about the topic to benefit everybody else, but then also to allow that sort of um, dynamic interaction to happen. Yeah. So that is another learning that we have um, gained from, from the previous roundtables we've done recently. Yeah. I actually find it easier to engage people on a virtual platform than a physical platform. Mm -hmm. um, physically, it's a lot more uh, like easy, dynamic, um, but it tends to be the people who want to talk, talk. In a virtual, you can call everybody out. Like you can go around the horn, um, right. I think a lot easier than you could physically. And people seem to feel more open to whatever's comfortable, comfortable for them. Right. I won't say that everybody talks an equal amount, um, but you can tell people that would never interrupt pausing and really kind of giving them an opportunity to speak and, and, and even prepping, right? Like, like calling out a question, um, you know, so-and-so just said this, that makes me think of this. What do you think um, kind of eases in that conversation? And, and I find that if you're able to do that, you get a lot better participation um, and you get to hear, again, that kind of perspective, right? You get to hear the perspective of someone that's not the loudest voice in the room. Yeah. Do you sub-select, Nasheen? Like, do you have a thousand people who want to come in and you, you create the audience to which you want to have a conversation or, you know, first come, first serve? What's the, what's the process there? Are you looking and creating diversity on purpose or does it just get created? Um, I, we are looking to create diversity on purpose and who can contribute to the topic. So there are several factors. One is, do you have expertise to contribute to certain topics? Um, second is, would you be interested in these topics? Right. So maybe right now you don't know enough, but you're very curious and interested in learning about it. Um, and, you know, would these conversations be actually of value to you, not just to you as a person, but also to your team? Mm -hmm. Right. And then to provide that collaboration opportunity between you and your peers. So there's a myriad of factors that are taken into consideration in terms of participant selection. And of course, we have a community of, um, you know, six to 700 CIOs just in GTA area alone. And in many cases, we do have CIOs on the waiting list who would like to participate, but we're just simply full. Even I can only go to one out of every 10. It's shocking. <laughs> Um, let's, let's go to a macro conversation because you spend as much time with CIOs as you do with actual technology providers and CMOs of technology providers. Are you seeing any sort of macro shifts in, you know, big tech companies and how they're, how they're changing their whole marketing program or not, or anything like what's, is there a yeah. massive shift in that side? I think if, if anything that has taught me you know, this crisis has really taught me that, you know, it's not that everything all of a sudden is changing, but it has accelerated trends that have been in existence for many years. And there may be trends that were having trouble gaining adoption, but all of a sudden they are, you know, digital transformation, for example, it's a perfect example. I think you've 
CFO talked about it and, you know, our, our CIOs have talked about it. They've given the example of, you know, never let good, a good crisis go to waste, right? So before you, you could have a collaboration technology and trying to encourage your business users to use it and you're pulling your hair out and trying to come up with games and contests and prizes and no one would use it and overnight everybody else is, is on it, right? So that is one thing that I noticed is the acceleration of the, the trends for, for marketing, for example. I would say in the last 10 years, it's really the, the golden decade for a B2B marketer. Mm. And <laughs> because the CMO stock in general has really grown within the organization. The strategic posture has really grown within the organization. I've never seen more um, marketing executives to be on the table um, to be part of a C-suite decision. I've mm. never seen a CMO to work so closely with a CIO in making digital technology investment decisions, right? So that is one thing that I noticed that's already been in existence in the last 10 years. And the other thing I've noticed is the digital skills, investment in digital skills. And now more than ever, you realize the investment you put in in the last few years, thanks to the influx of millennials in particular joining the organization who possess those digital skills is more important than ever. And that will continue, will need to continue. The other element is Brands are more aware of, and I touched upon this earlier, what is really their purpose, right? So more brands in cultivating their messaging, creating their content are more mindful about coming up with a purpose-led brand strategy. And that has been accelerated during um, this period and will continue to accelerate going forward. The, the other thing I noticed is revenue-driven marketing, right? Also in the 10 years, more marketing executives and marketing team in general are really on the hook to deliver real pipeline opportunities and creating, you know, uh, creating an impact on both the bottom line and the top line. But now more than ever during a crisis, and after the crisis going forward, that will become more important for the CEO to hold CMO accountable in that regard. And I give you an example. In 2010, Harvard Business Review conducted a very extensive study on past, you know, past recessions and, and their impact on corporate performance, right? So, and, that is prior to the 2008 financial crisis. So they took three recessions prior to that and they basically studied 4,700 companies. And, and the findings were really daunting because 17% of those did not survive a recession at all. 80% of the business did survive, but after three years have not regained their financial performance, the growth rate, 
as as before, and only nine percent flourished. You know, increasing their their growth rate by ten percent or more, right? But that's then. This is now. It's not to say that we'll be back into the same situation, but we all know a recession is coming, and it's going to take a while to recover. So revenue marketing becomes more important on on the radar of a、uh, CEO. And then another element is I'm seeing right now everybody obviously is putting a stop on the in-person event, but as we're Going back to the new normal, I don't see the in-person event stop completely. They will be reduced. They will be done more mindfully and more creatively. But I foresee this bigger integration between the digital component and the in-person event, right? And what that means is, in the last ten years, especially in the last five, you see more and more. Digital elements incorporated into an in-person event, but they mostly serve as making it more efficient. For example, download this app so you can better orient yourself, select the、mm-hmm. sessions, right? That sort of thing, and then people use social media to tweet the content and share content externally, trying to drum up some uptake on the content. But that's barely scratching the surface. So going forward, what I see is technologies will play a bigger role in the in-person event, like simulcast, for for example. It's more about how content has been created and delivered through multiple channels to give people the choice of while、well, I'm at the in-person event, but I still can choose to stay in my hotel room or go to a, you know, a, a hallway when there's fewer people to consume that content. So that's one piece. The next piece I see changing is post-event engagement, and how digital technologies will need to play a bigger role in that. And right now, again. The role it's playing—it's—it's merely about let's swipe your badge, and you know, so we understand you've been to this session, and we may understand what、um, you know topics you're interested in, but that needs to go much further. Like、mm-hmm. you need to understand not just who they are, and you know, on the surface what they're interested in in your sessions, but a lot more about the individual. So I do see that、um, changing as well, and I I think vendors, if they haven't thought about that, they they should. But it also needs to become bidirectional, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if I swipe a badge, I get nothing for that. If I register for a session, I actually get nothing for that.、Um, if if there's a simulcast, I get little to nothing for that.、Um, right? And and like the apps are a really good example. Um, because all they do is provide kind of a digital schedule. Kind of, it's updated three weeks before the con, and if something gets scheduled or changed, it may or may not make it into the app. We'll see, right? But what I'd really like is if I swipe my badge, update the app so I know I went to that thing, and then give me some information about the person who spoke, allow me to take notes, and maybe set a tickler to to maybe. Connect with them on LinkedIn or follow their Twitter feed or something. And most of the apps, it's simply, it's simply a digital representation of what you previously got in the catalog. 
and I get nothing for participating. Tell me, what is the fastest way to get to where I want to go? Like, give me a live map. Use LiDAR, use camera data, use the RFID contained within the badges to show me what is the traffic through the hall? How full is the room? So I don't waste 25 minutes walking across an enormous conference hall only to find, oh, there's no seating left in that room. I've wasted my time. I very well could have just gone up to my room and watched it. Right? I think it's more than just give me alternate ways to view, but really start changing that experience into the way I want that experience to be. Right? Give me something in exchange for sharing that data. The most yeah. valuable thing for me would be um, if I've been to this conference uh, seven times, use all the sessions I've ever been to to build out my schedule and tell me which sessions to go to based on what I actually am interested in. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting. I don't have to choose from 10. It's already told me the one that is, you know, 98% likely that I'll enjoy. So it's okay. like the uh, Amazon concept of recommending. Right. <laughs> the but pre do it. Like, I want you to recommend create my schedule. Yeah. Like I want you to recommend, you liked this speaker. Your review of this speaker was good. Hey, they're back speaking again. This is when they're speaking. I know right. you have things you'd like to see. We kind of recommend you see the one with the speaker you want to, you want to actually see. And then also use the analytics. The top rated speakers should never speak at the same time. For any reason, never, ever, don't make it happen, right? Because those are the ones that people are going to most want to see. And even if, even if I can't make it into the room, I might want to go simulcast it. Carlos. So this has been an interesting conversation because in this past month, I actually have been on three virtual conferences, specifically talking about for companies, how they do that and... Interestingly, you mentioned something, Nasheen. The branding of a CIO in this whole time, how they communicate. So if we have other leaders and CIOs that are listening to us, what would you say to them through this time and probably moving forward? Like, it's not just the new normal. What they should do to brand themselves when they communicate from the company standpoint, but also each one of them is a leader with, within their tower. So it's not just connected to the company. They're leaders within probably their community, their area. What should they do to brand themselves so they are recognized and communicate and share their knowledge? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, CIOs, again, you know, I look at the past, maybe not 10 years, but the, the past five years, they're much more aware of, you know, how they communicate, how they present, and how they represent not just themselves, but their team plays a critical role to not just their own relationship with the C-suite, their customers, but also their um, career terrestry, right? So the personal branding piece is, is a very important piece. And I think, you know, by, you know, one of the, the values of attending the CIO roundtables or, or industry events is you, you get to tap into that peer insights. You watch how your peers conduct themselves and you hear these success stories, right? So you can learn directly from your peers. And the, the other thing I think that's really important is 
when you know you're struggling or this is not your forte, work with someone who's a professional. Work with someone who can help you because branding is a big topic, but it, you know, when it really, when you peel the layers of the onion, there's some very basic fundamental steps as individuals we can take, right? So one of the things is leveraging the power of content. And right now we have such huge consumption of content out there. So how do you really leverage the content that you may be creating yourself? For example, like a blog you're writing or um, looking for opportunities to engage influencers, um, you know, media outlets to have these opportunities to share your message, right? So all of these opportunities, leveraging content and channels are good ways to help you with your personal brand. That's being awesome. This conversation has been great. And each one of you that are listening or watching us, make sure that you subscribe to each of our channels so you get notifications right away when we come with some great speakers, Lena Sheen, and some great content from Paul and Howard, myself, and my friends. It's been awesome to see you again. And as always, We'll see you on our next episode.